0: Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our Insight to Isaiah program. We're in the midst of the study of the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah. And without any further ado, if you'd turn with me and join, while we're in the midst of our study, Isaiah chapter 44, and there at verse 24 is where we'll begin this segment of our study. Uh, The As I've been sharing with you before, um, Isaiah is laying out uh, a very powerful sermon, if you will, on, you know, how to evaluate and how to get ourselves um, straightened out spiritually. Now, in Isaiah's day, there were many of his brethren that were not obeying the Lord, not following the Lord. They had ceased to follow the Lord. They were practicing idolatry. In fact, Isaiah himself says, had, had there not been that the remnant was very small in the land at that time, had they been any smaller, uh, Israel would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have been laid to waste and, and they wouldn't exist anymore. But because of a certain remnant, a small portion of those that believe the Lord, the Lord, you know, continued to work with them and continue to keep Israel on track. The same as with us is that, you know, we are part of God's remnant, uh, and and just like the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there needs to be a certain number of us who continue to believe and continue to be the remnant for our communities, for our families, and so forth. Uh, regardless of what the, all of the majority may do or the plurality may do, we need to be that people who's hanging on there. And Isaiah is pleading with the people of his day to join with that small remnant to be to increase that remnant, uh, so that they would continue to prevail. In this last portion, while I did not read all of uh, chapter 44 to you, I told you last week that it was a, a segment of of uh, how an idolater operates, and literally the silliness, the folly of being an idolater. He finds a tree, he goes, he chops the tree down, and he starts chipping away parts of the tree. He's forming a figure that's going to become God, and, and he gets the thing formed the way he wants, and then he takes all the chip pieces and all the other uh, ex- extraneous pieces of the tree, and he uses those for his campfire, and he cooks his food on it. If you stop and think about that what 's the difference between those chips going in the in the fire and the figurine shape of a god going into the fire they 're all fuel for the fire uh, that there 's nothing unique and special about that figurine other than it was formed out of the imagination of the idolater, and that is the folly of idolatry. Uh, now, most of us, and this has been my experience in my walk of faith, when I talk about the subject of idolatry, most people that I meet, they think, oh, well, that's something the ancients used to do. That was the silliness of them, when they would set up a stone or, or, or form a, a wood thing, or they would call something to be God that wasn't God. You know, they'd take an object like the sun or the moon, or a mountain, or whatever, and they'd make that to be God. Now, we look back on that, and we go, well, that was silly. Utterly silly. You know, that thing couldn't do a thing for them. And especially when you see the stories of how God came and judged the gods of Egypt, these individual gods, obviously, they did not measure up. Uh, They couldn't withstand, you know, the God of Israel uh, that's for it. Well, we still have idolatry today it's just uh, taking on the exact form that the other one did because all idolatry is created out of a man's imagination or oh, i imagine this object to be god i imagine this to be god and uh, uh, forming a god out of your imagination is the highest form of idolatry it's not it's not the wood thing it's not the stone thing it's it's that you created A substitute for God. Now, maybe we should examine a little bit. Now, Why in the world would men do that? What is the temptation there? Why why would they be inclined to do something that silly? Well, it comes down to this, and that's what we're hearing Isaiah uh, speaking to and what Isaiah is going to continue to speak to, particularly in this segment that we're looking at. He says, um, he repeats what the Lord says of himself. He says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the creator. I made everything. I made you. And the idea, if you accept that, is, well, then, if he's the creator, then I guess he's the one who gets to make the rules because the whole creation is there at his... For his purpose. Uh, it's, uh, we are not some thing and then God shows up. And we try to sort that out. God was there and then he made us. And we are here as a result of God. One of the arguments that he's going to make, and it's as fundamental and as simple as this. That um, when a potter takes a handful of clay and begins to shape it, you're never going to hear the clay stand up and say, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to be a pot. Uh, I want to be a pitcher. So I'm going to make myself into a pitcher. The pot, the clay can't do that. It's, it's madness. The same thing is true of your children. In fact, parents... Um, really try to emphasize this early on uh, and because it just makes sense. And that is, the kid does not have a right to say to his father or his mother that I'm going to do something or not do something. Why? Because the kid wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the father and the mother. He's not an independent entity that has intrinsic authorities or wisdoms for him to decide for himself, he has to be trained up to become an adult and a human being just like the rest of us. And the same is true of us. We're not supposed to be exercising great judgments about our life until we have been trained by the Lord. Instead, when we're young and naive, we tell the Lord off. We, we tell him we're not going to do what he says. Fundamentally, idolatry is about creating a God so you get to make up your own rules. I want to deny the rules of the one true God. I don't want to do what he says, so I'll deny him being God. And I'll make something else God. And since I created, I imagined the God, I get to decide what the rules are going to be. And it's, it's rebellion. It is, it is uh, being against God and setting yourself up for it. But as you all know, this is an unbelievable disaster in the making. Because the problem is, is that we're all operating on a world that was made by the one true God. So anything that you do contrary to him is a misappropriation of whatever it is that he has made. And, oh, by the way, just like the idol maker, he can pick up the chips and the whole object that you quote has made, and he can put it in the fire and he can cook his supper over it. He can wipe it completely out. So uh, this is is what Isaiah is trying to deal with. He's got a lot of people that are into idolatry. By the way, I'm, I'm not here to point out everybody's sins. I'm here to speak to the things that the Lord has said. But let's be honest with one another, and let's admit that we live in a world of a lot of people who deny God. And they make other things to be God to substitute for Him so that they can make up the rules. In our society today, uh, we've got a lot of people who have figured this out. You know how you can overcome the rule about the rules that come with being married. You can overcome the rules about your sexual morality. You know how you do it? Just deny the God who made the rules. And all of his rules go with him as you deny him. And then that leaves open for you to decide what kind of God that you want to create in your imagination, and you can make the rules... That fit to what you want, because we all live by rules. Even unbelievers live by rules, you know, and they're subject to the rules of the world, the rules of others, and so what they want to do is they want to have a say about the rules, and so that's how we have people who, let me use one example here, um, they lust. And God says, you're not supposed to lust. And they said, well, mm, I I want to lust. And they say, I know what to do. We'll get rid of God who made the rules, don't lust. And then I'll go out and lust however I want. And then I'll come up with a new set of rules and I'll come up with a new definition for what is right. Right. And that's the reason why we have all of the sexual issues going on in the world. You know, let me give you my simple definition on sometimes when i'm confronted with uh, the modern issue that we have today of homosexuality monty how do you how do you address that issue as a believer how do you how do you, how do you reconcile? The, that we have a lot of people in the world that think that's okay now. Well, uh, I do it by saying the following. If you believe that homosexuality is okay, well, then the rule is that your sexual preference is okay. And if that's so, then a, an adulterer has not done anything wrong. That's his sexual preference. A pedophile is not wrong that is his sexual preference a person that goes out and has sex with animals that's his preference so you can't say that you're opposed to that you can't say there's a rule against that you can't say that's wrong because it's about lust the sin is lust okay and you're not to lust now how do we exercise ourselves um, for procreation and recreation in a a civilized society God set up the institution of marriage man and wife you bear children and the world continues on homosexuals don't bear children pedophiles don't bear children there's no environment there for procreation it is strictly about them and their lust. That's all it's about. It has no greater benefit to the rest of the world, or to uh, to that. Marriage brings new living souls into the world. Now, that's just one item of lust. Lust also has to do with a whole bunch of other things, which leads into greed and all kinds of things. And and we would we look at lust in other things, and we say, oh, that's bad. For you to be greedy for money, it's your lusting for that. Lusting for power and to be a lord over other people. We look at those and we say, oh, no, those are not right. But we somehow want to exclude lust for sexuality and say it's not. I'll tell you what's really going on. That's the work of an idolater. He doesn't want to find, he doesn't want to follow the one true God, and so he goes off and does whatever he wants. And that's what Isaiah is addressing here about all of the heirs and all of the stuff that's going on in Israel in his day. Not only with the general citizenry, but with the leaders of Israel and the other kings of other nations and other peoples. And so forth. he's addressing the fundamental issue. And the fundamental issue is they have made another God for themselves. And that's their, quote, license to do whatever they want. Now we're going to have a little bit more of this. Um, but let's begin now at Isaiah 44, beginning of verse 24. Let me read a bit for you. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says of Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, or of the cities of Judah, They shall be built. I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, Be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, you, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Uh, again, God is reiterating through Isaiah here, I, the Lord, and the one who makes these decisions. You don't make these decisions. You don't decide what will happen and what will not happen. You're not the person who decided how to create the universe and how to put the moon around us or put us in the solar system that we sit in. You're not the one who decided to put all the stars in the different places. When you look up into the sky, you can say, oh, well, there's that constellation and so forth. You didn't put it there. I, the Lord, put it there. Now, that's the big things. Down at the personal things. He says, if I say a city is going to be built, it's going to be built. If I want to take on the wisest man you have, I'll make him look like a fool. I'll turn that into foolishness. When I read this verse about the wise, I'm reminded of uh, something that happened to me. I wish I still had this book. Um, when I was uh, a young man, um and i and I want to say it's still in my youth, I was in my teens. I found a book uh there at my home that had been given to my mother as a gift when I was born, and it was a family medical guide i don't know if you 've seen books like that or not. this used to be very popular, apparently. Back in the previous generation, you'd get one of these books and it would tell you all about stuff like how to deal with bleeding and different kinds of basic things, that infirmities that would happen to people and it would give definitions and explanations and so forth uh, for it. And one of the areas of the book, and I'm not making this up, one of the areas of the book was addressing the problem of why do young women want to leave the home and go out and work professionally in the workplace. Now, in 1949, it was looked down upon for a woman to leave the home, not be home as a wife and mother, but to go out and try to get a job, have a professional career. That was in 1949, and that was a major sociological issue and here's this medical guide of which we're talking about doctors i mean they know best they're the smartest amongst us they know the best thing for us okay and they're giving their explanation about it and i'm reading now mind you i'm only a teen at the time i am rolling off onto the floor in laughter that this was the professional thinking on the year I was born. So we're talking only about 15 years after I was born, the transition had already taken place. And here in 1949, this book referenced and said the reason why young women want to go into the workplace and so forth is because... Um, They were too strictly toilet-trained by their mothers. I'm not making this up. That was the considered professional opinion, the very considered professional opinion uh, in, in that day. And that's the reason why women go off and do that. And the idea was don't too strictly toilet train your daughter or else she'll be leaving the home and she'll want to go out and get a job too. I mean, the logic of this is just unbelievable. And you know what? In 1949, people believed this. Professionals promoted this and said it was settled judgment. This was the right way versus the wrong way uh, kind of thing. That's just one little minor example of what I discovered in the course of my life uh, about what people think. I remember the days um, and when I was in high school when the consensus opinion was that the United States military needs to go and be part of the Vietnam conflict, that they thought that was the right thing to do. And shortly after I graduated from high school, all of a sudden the whole opinion changed, and it was now a terrible decision and a terrible thing that was taking place. There's a series of other things that I've gone through. You remember when they came out and the news media said that the, we've discovered what cholesterol was in the blood? And they came out and they said, "Eggs are full of cholesterol, and they're terrible for you. Don't eat eggs." Only to find out, well, there's a couple of different types of cholesterol. There's good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, and eggs are just fine for you. But we went through that whole cycle. You know, remember, for dieting purposes, you can't eat fat. Okay? Gotta avoid fat. Okay? Now they've got a diet that says, promotes fat. Oh, the problem is, you need to eat more fat. I'm not quite sure exactly what diet that is. I think it's the keto diet or something like that. Uh, things vacillate, go back and forth, and there's no steady um, thing. Um, how is it that we in a society today, many of us are overweight? I don't remember back when I was a kid, my uncles are and so forth, They're ever having a weight problem. I don't, I don't remember when they were that age. I don't remember my grandfather having a weight problem. Why, why do we have a weight problem today? Well, we've changed the food. We've changed the food out. And as a result, that has happened. And, and by the way, we have a whole lot of different conveniences. You know, I remember when I was a kid with my grandmother, when we went to town, we walked We walked several blocks up to town. And we were appreciative of the fact that all the stores were kind of in the same few blocks together. And you could just go down the block and go to the different stores you needed to do. And you'd get these sacks and they'd get a kid like me to walk along so I could carry the stuff for Grandma. I mean, you didn't load it up in your car and you didn't, you know, there was a lot more activity that was going on, physical activity that was going on, that we don't have any anymore. The world's changed on us, and it's changing. Do you know that people uh, that are idolaters, people who are opposed to the Lord, they see the changing world, and they think he's got to change. And so they want to change him to conform We've got people arguing, for example, the Constitution of the United States. Oh, it's a living document. We need to change it to keep up with the changes that are going on right now. And one of the things that's driving it is, well, the Constitution never had a thing to say about homosexuality, but we want homosexuality to be the law of the land, so we need to get the Constitution to change. So it'll be a right, because the Constitution lays out our rights. You know what the Constitution says? It says the rights come from God, don't they don't come from a government. And they don't like that either. That's way too close getting back to God and so forth. No matter what area of life that you go, you cannot escape the Lord. You want to know why? Because everything here is made by him. You have to come to terms with him, that he is God, He's the Creator. Everything here, light, darkness, everything here, he put here, including you and me. And it's very difficult uh, for you to have peace in your life, be able to get on with your life, if you deny that. Now, what we're really talking about is the sovereignty of God. God. And sovereignty is getting to be a very delicate, difficult issue. You know, nations are sovereign. But do you know right now we've got a bunch of citizens in this United States of America that now want to surrender the sovereignty of this nation and make us like everybody else. And oh, by the way, we'll simply sit down and do a little comparison here. Our country versus the other country. And quite honestly, it is an incredible blessing that we are living in this country. You want to be like their country? And you want to conform to them? Guess what will happen to you? All the good stuff we've got right now, it won't remain. We'll become like them. Where they have a shortage of food. A shortage of opportunity. People don't do as well. People die earlier. And there's chaos. There's no sense of right and wrong. It's just whoever is the most powerful. Um, We are getting to the point where the very principles that we used to have, which, by the way, are principles that come from God, that you cannot make false accusations against leaders, that you cannot bear false witness, you know, we're having those kinds of issues going on all the time now for public figures. And um, and they're, everybody's just going for it. The um, Do you know how harmful it is for if a group of people or a couple of individuals were to decide to put out a rumor about you and accuse you or suggest that you've done some utterly despicable thing? And watch it just destroy your life because there's no way for you to fight it, deal with it, or whatever. The number of times that we've seen individuals whose reputations were literally shattered, and then it was later proved, they never did that, that it was a false accusation. The person who falsely accused, were they punished? No. How did the other person who lost the reputation, how did they get the reputation back? They didn't. All it did was destroy. And when you walk walk away from the principles of truth, you're in a a path of destruction. The same thing is true with regard to your relationship with God. You step away from God, and you're on the path to self-destruction. And you will be destroyed by you and the world. Um... With all of that said, let me continue to read on here, but there's a lot that's at stake here that Isaiah is trying to address in his day. And fundamental to his argument is this: is God is sovereign, He gets to decide, you have to make a decision to follow what he says and agree with where he's at. If you're in disagreement with him and you deny what he says, and so forth, you are going to suffer the consequences. You are not going to prevail. So, continuing on. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loosen the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through them um, through iron bars. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. He says, I'm going to promote a certain... Persian king, and I'm going to grant him success in everything he does, and it's for the purpose so that he will be a benefit to Jacob. Did you know that God can orchestrate in your life other people to do other things for your benefit? My testimony in my life my career that I had before I went into the ministry, the success that I had, as I've shared with people many times, God granted me the blessing of having the favor of those men. There's a whole lot of other men, professional men, who promoted me, who supported me, who opened doors for me, who removed obstacles so that I could go forward. And I look back now, and I realize God did that. God moved those men to do what they did. Because there were so many of them in many different things, and they didn't know each other. So how is it that we came up with this great plan of all these men were going to do this? Well, they didn't know each other. They didn't know there was any kind of a plan, but God orchestrated it for my benefit And I look back and I recognize it. And I'm thankful to the Lord for all those blessings that I received. I'm thankful for him doing good to me so that I could do good for my family. And and, uh, so he was fulfilling promises to me that he had made that he would bless me and increase me and give me the power to gain wealth in my hands and to live in goodly houses. I th- those are the promises that God gave me. Because those are the things I requested of Him, and He said, Yes, I will do those things for you. And in this particular case, Isaiah is citing, I'm going to raise up a Persian king to help Jacob, to help the children of Israel, to help Israel as a nation. He goes on to say, um, Well, let me repeat there verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Uh, Though you have not known me, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know that the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. Let me go ahead and just say something to you that's fundamentally taking part in this in this world. I don't personally like our president, Donald Trump. Kind of foul mouth. Um, his sins are kind of obvious. And I don't agree with him. I don't agree with everything he says. I think a lot of things that he do is not wise. I wish he was smarter. I wish he was wiser. But there is no doubt in my mind that God said, I want Donald Trump to be the president of the United States at this particular time. And I want him to go do certain things that are for the benefit of those people that belong to me. Not the least of which is the nation of Israel and moving the embassy to Jerusalem. That is the reason why, as I shared with you before, in Israel, they love Donald Trump. They equate him to Cyrus, the man that we're talking about here in Isaiah. And they believe that God purposed Donald Trump to become president to the benefit of Israel. By the way, God has done this in the past, and I believe God is doing it again. Now, we know we're at the end of the age. We know there are things happening that are devastating. And, but we also know the Lord has his perfect timing. And so he has chosen the right time for that to take place. And maybe he wanted to slow the progress of evil and he decided to put Donald Trump in the position to slow that stuff down so it comes out correctly at the right time. I don't have a difficulty understanding that concept, and I don't have difficulty with God being that sovereign and that powerful to do that. The irony of the situation is is that Donald Trump has become a very spiritual creature himself as a result of all of this going on and i I know that irks uh, the liberals to hear that he's gotten a gotten a little bit of uh, spirituality about him that he's become a believer, and so forth. By the way, the same liberals would not have liked a King David either. King David was one of the greatest kings of Israel, did incredible things, defeated his enemies, did much good to the nation uh, increased the nation of Israel, to its greatest power. And yet this man was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet God saw past that, forgave that, and worked with him to do it. And then set the stage that one of his sons would become the Messiah. Now that's a pretty clear example of the sovereignty of God. Um, that should be personal encouragement to you and me. Because you all know we're not perfect creatures either. And yet God, in His sovereign will, can look down upon us, and He can choose us to do His will and to do great things in the kingdom to our benefit and be used to the Lord. That's all I've ever asked of the Lord personally for me. Lord, would you just use me? You You choose where you want to use me. I just want to be used of you in your kingdom. I don't have to do all kinds of spectacular things. Just please be willing to use me. Make me a vessel fit for your use. And by the way, let me go ahead and tell you, uh, I have had my moments in my life that I'm not proud of. And yet, um, I'm confident that it's going to be okay because of the goodness of the Lord and because of His forgiveness. Uh, for me, he goes on to uh, say here further, verse eight: Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit, and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. That's what you. That's almost a prayer you want to put on yourself. Lord, would you just, from heaven, drip that good stuff down on me? Just make me a wash of all the things of you, you know, so that I might have salvation and that righteousness might spring up from me and I can testify to you being my creator. Verse 9, Woe to one who quarrels with his maker, an earthen vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making He has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, Ask me about things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. I have roused him in righteousness, and I will make... All his ways smooth. He will build my city and I will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Um, this is what the Lord did with Cyrus. The children of Israel, you know, were taken captive by the Babylonians. They had no hope, no future. They'd been pulled completely from their land, their city had been destroyed. Here comes Cyrus, and he says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Uh, you're going to be set free. And by the way, we're going to rebuild the city, and I'm going to help you to do that. And by the way, you don't have to pay me anything. Now, when you get something like that, you definitely got something from the Lord. There's no cause and effect on your part. I have no righteousness to commend me. Uh, that Israel certainly had no righteousness to commend them before Cyrus, or the Lord for that matter. Yet God chose Cyrus to do this so that Israel would benefit from it. You heard the language in there that, uh, you know, the potter, the clay doesn't get to say to the potter, you know, and so forth. Let me take you, just so that you, we tie this back into the New Testament again, that this is the basis of a lot of the teaching in the New Testament. I want to take you to Romans chapter 9. And I want to um, show you where Paul teaches what I've just read to you and what I've been trying to teach you today. How about it? Uh, Begin with me in Romans chapter 9, um, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. And this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this but there was rebecca also when she also conceived twins by one man our father isaac for though the ten twins were not yet born and not had not done anything good or bad in order that god's purpose according to his choice might stand not because of works but because of him who calls it was said to her the older will serve the younger just as it is written jacob I love but esau I hated What shall we then say? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, "...to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, then, why does he still find fault for who, uh, who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, man, who answers back to God?" The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right to over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy when he prepared beforehand his glory. That's Paul making the argument that says God has many purposes. He can work with the righteous to accomplish his will. He can also take the unrighteous and he can work with them to accomplish his will. That there's no Element that really can resist him. There's no piece of clay that can stop him from making what he wants to make as the potter. And this is one of the passages, this is a part of the story that uh, I know that when I first went through reading this, when I first went through the study about learning about God, there were certain things that would twinge in me And let me just kind of explain to you. You remember Abraham and the story of him? You know, his first son was Ishmael. But, quote, he wasn't the promised son that God had promised. Turned out Isaac was the promised son. So is God, like, unfair to Ishmael? Um, And then Isaac has sons, and there's twins, And the firstborn is Esau. Secondborn is Jacob. But he chooses Jacob over the firstborn. Hmm. You know what? It doesn't stop there. Um, Jacob has sons. His first son is Reuben. But God puts favor on Joseph the firstborn of Rachel instead of Leah. He he decided that. And it, if you take it all the way down to the present time, um, the favor that you and I get, God decided that. So what should be our response to all of this? Should our response be, well, you know, I don't think God's really being very fair about all this or should our response be thank you God for your mercy thank you for being merciful because the reason he set it up was so that you could see how merciful he is so that you would come to understand his character and his purpose as to who he is and that's what Paul's trying to explain don't you see he's trying to show you how merciful he really is by the way and this is an interesting question. I'm curious uh, about all of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt and disobeyed the Lord and broke the covenant that God made with them, wouldn't follow his instructions to the extent that they were judged and weren't even permitted to go into the promised land. They died in the wilderness. I wonder how many of them will be in the future kingdom. That's a very interesting question. Because there was only two of them that made actually made it in the promised land. And it didn't include Moses and Aaron. Do you think Moses or Aaron is going to be in the promised land? I think they will be. And I think there's a good possibility there's a whole bunch of the other children of Israel that's going to make it in the promised land too. I wouldn't be shocked to find out that Korah, makes it to the promised land. I wouldn't be shocked. Why? Why would I not be shocked? Because I believe that the mercy of God is beyond my understanding. I believe he's far more merciful than even I can quite grasp. And if God wanted to use Korah for a particular purpose, and he wanted to use Esau for a particular purpose, and he wanted to use Aaron, or Moses for a particular purpose. What? What? Who, because it was a good purpose, we think that's the measure of who's in the kingdom. It was a bad purpose, so that's not the measure of who's in the kingdom. When Paul just got through saying, no, it's about whether or not you believe in the promises of God. It fundamentally comes back to who's saved and who's not saved. You know, we observe people in the, in the world and in our lives. I wonder who's saved and not saved. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and just tell you something. Nobody knows. I don't even know it about myself. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that I am. I'm hoping and trusting in God's mercy and forgiveness. But I have no righteousness to commend me. I have no surety whatsoever about this. And oh, by the way, if I'm barely making it, then how in the world would I critique someone who just because I see a momentary effort in their life that looked bad? I don't know that person. And I don't know what God thinks about that person. Because he's the only one that's going to be judging. He's the only one that's going to determine it. So let me just take a moment here for to, to explain fundamentally how incredible this concept is. I call it uh, the Jewish trap. It's when a nice Christian comes up and wants to share uh, Jesus with a Jewish person. And so they announce that Jesus is the Savior. And about how that if you believe in Jesus, you'll receive eternal life and forgiveness of your sins and so forth. And so the Jewish person listens intently. And he goes through the whole thing, shares the gospel with him, shares the, the Romans road, the you know the salvation message to it. And so the Jewish person is um, then at the end, he says, okay, I want to make sure I understand what you said. So you're saying that if I accept uh, Jesus, that I will receive forgiveness of my sins, and that I will be going to heaven. Yes, yeah, you've got it. And that if I don't do that, then I'm probably going to go the other place. Yeah, I'm sorry, but yes, that's that's true. Then they'll ask the question, and this is why we call the Jewish trap, what about Zadie and Bubby? And, of course, the Christian will go, Zadie and Bubby, what's that? He said, well, that's my grandpa and my grandma, Zadie and Bubby. They didn't believe in Jesus. I saw their life. They didn't believe in Jesus. So are you saying they're going to go to hell because they didn't believe in Jesus? Now, if the Christian is dumb enough to answer that with a yes or no, You just convinced the Jewish person you don't know the God of Israel. This is revealing who the God of Israel is. This is Isaiah teaching us about the sovereignty of God. God decides. He's the one true judge. You and I have no say about the things that is his business. We don't get to make judgments for him. We don't get to substitute any of our judgments for his judgments. And the very fact that some Christian would go up and say to another, Oh, you will definitely be in heaven, or no, you're definitely going to hell, just proved you don't really know this God at all. If you knew the Lord correctly, you would answer the question with, Only the Lord knows. That would be a person who knows this God that Isaiah is talking about. He's the one who makes these decisions. He's the one who creates. He's the one who determines who will do what. He's the one who decides whether you and I are going to get blessings and increase, or whether uh, somebody who doesn't appear to be a believer to you, doesn't know the Lord would be used by the Lord for our benefit. He's the one who decides that's the way it works. And what I have tried to, um, in, in the years that I've been trying to teach, I summarize some of this down to a final point that I usually share with people. And I say, you've got to come to the point in your spiritual life where you're going to let God be the God part and you just be the man part. Because if you're still in that station of life where you want to be part God and want to make God part man, then it's not going to work out for you. Let God be God. You just be the man part, the created part. Don't usurp the authority of the creator. Everybody that does gets in trouble. It doesn't work out for them. And I think the reason why Isaiah is homing on this so strongly was this was the lesson that Israel had forgotten. This is the lesson that they had walked away from, and everything from that air had it off from it. I look at the issues today, and I agree with Isaiah about his assessment, his wisdom concerning what we see going on today. Fundamentally, every issue that we see with mankind and our communities and so forth that is not working out you know, correctly, it can all be traced back to do we listen to God or not? Do we let God be the God part? the rule maker, the law maker, who is sovereign in his purposes and full of mercy? Do we do we let him do that, or do we want to go in and usurp part of that and say, well, I'll decide where mercy or justice should be done, and I'll decide what the rules should be. You can make up some of the rules, but I'll make some others. And by the way, when I make a rule that's contrary to yours, we'll nullify yours and we'll use mine. there's nothing that a man can nullify about god there's nothing i think that's what isaiah is trying to do here in this and he keeps bringing up different ways of saying this but i think that's the essence of what he is trying to home in on to make sure that we if we could get that part straight first things are going to be much better for us we're going to be over overcome the problems that we have we're going to move forward and we're gonna have a much better life. Amen. All right, that's our portion for this week and inside of Isaiah. Look forward to seeing you next week when we take up take up the passage again. Shabbat Shalom.